Well, we have wanted to collaborate for a while now because we are interested in similar things. We're both interested in Christianity. We're interested in culture, interested in politics. And that is why we are going to discuss the current state of modern Christian culture and hopefully maybe offer some insights for Christians who do want to navigate that and better defend their faith. So to kick things off, I think, Ian, and I'll give you a chance to sort of fully explain what you see the problem being, but I I think we see the same widespread problem, which is that in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, we seem to have more and more Christians who are passive and they're not really that thrilled or even willing to stick up for the gospel or the Bible or Christian ethics. Would you agree with that assessment? I definitely agree with that. And you mentioned there are a couple of problems. One is growing hostility to Christianity and another one is Christian passivity in the face of that hostility. And I think there's a couple of key cultural problems in the church that have caused that passivity. And I think it's an un- unbiblical, unchristian passivity. It's not part of historic or biblical Christianity. And one, I think, is that we have selectively emphasized only one aspect of Jesus' personality, of the Christian character. So we can kind of think of the character of Christ in the Gospels as having many different aspects which are complementary but distinct. You could see at different points in the scriptural narrative, a different aspect of Christ's character might be more visible based on the context. At one moment, he's washing his disciples' feet and being very humble. At another moment, he's whipping money changers in the temple, or he's calling the Pharisees serpents and vipers, and he's being very bold and zealous and active. And all of these things go together to make up one complete person. But the problem is when you selectively emphasize one dimension of his character, you destroy the whole. Every one of those aspects only makes sense in the context of the whole. And uh, the way that this happens, I think, is that we Christians will read about Christ washing his disciples' feet and will say, wow, we need to be imitators of God and imitate that kind of humility and servant leadership. And we're right. But then what happens when we read about Christ calling the Pharisees serpents and vipers? Then we say, whoa, 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 we, we can't just go around imitating Christ. He's God. We can't just imitate God. Yeah. So at one moment, his divinity means we ought to imitate him. And at another moment, his divinity means we shouldn't imitate him. Supposedly, when we do this, we're being very humble by selectively emphasizing just one aspect of his personality, especially when those parts happen to be the more socially convenient parts yes, of Christ's yes. character. Yes, exactly. I think you nailed it, especially with that last part. It is honestly, at least in our current cultural climate, like niceness has so much value right now. You know, there's like so many ad campaigns about being nice and, you know, shirts that say be nice. Like niceness is, is easy in a way, like, but people like to kind of kind of present it as if being nice is this big sacrifice. Whereas in reality, being Uh bold or being confrontational or being challenging is actually much more difficult (laughs) than being nice for most people. Right. And I think absolutely a related problem in the church is we have an underdeveloped conception of what humility and obedience actually looks like. We don't spend much time in in church talking about the practical ethics of the New Testament. So for example, I have never, I think, heard a sermon on what Ephesians 5 looks like in a marriage. And I've attended several, you know, fairly faithful to the New Testament texts sorts of churches. And I think a result of that is we end up 
not clinging to specific ethical injunctions, but these kind of general feelings like niceness. We're trying to roughly approximate the New Testament without getting into the specifics. And so we have this meekness that's a kind of diffuse sentiment that just means being very agreeable all the time. That's our image of the Christian character, is you're agreeable all the time. And what's the worst result of that? The worst consequence of that is we now have all of these millennial evangelicals who are very, very nice to their non-Christian friends, but they can't actually share the Christian worldview with them because sharing a new worldview with someone is of necessity disagreeable. It actually doesn't matter what the worldview is. Anytime you're saying you ought to replace your current worldview with consider this other worldview I have to offer, that is disagreeable. And the Christian worldview, of course, is especially disagreeable (laughs) because it says, enter by the narrow gates. I've come to cast fire upon the earth. I've come to bring a sword. Christ emphasizes again and again the inherently disagreeable (laughs) nature of the Christian faith. So we cannot have a Christian conception of friendliness and love that takes the form of one-dimensional agreeableness. Yes, you're so correct. And as you are saying it, I like cringe a little because being being bold is relatively new for me. Like I guess relative to other people, I'm I'm outspoken, but I've spent a lot of my life, especially in academia. I don't know. It's not that new. I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, for a while now. But there was a time not even that long ago. Oh, I hate this so much. So we started going to our church, which I love our church. But as you know, it is affiliated with the larger PCUSA. There's lots of vagueness within the church. Right. According to the PCUSA's own survey from 2011, over a third of its members agree or strongly agree with the statement that all religions are equally true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there you there you have it. So that's a problem. But uh, we just started going and, you know, I added some people on Facebook that I'd met through the church and I shared this link to, do you remember that story that somehow has been forgotten about a school shooting camp in Arizona that had been set up by, yeah, yeah, by a Muslim group of people and all of the people involved were acquitted. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember that? I didn't follow that in detail, but I do know roughly what you're talking about. Yeah, there were some like underground tunnels. And I think maybe some teenagers were sort of practicing military drills. Right. That's exactly. about the extent of what I And they found a dead case. body and they found drugs. It was all these crazy things. And everyone was acquitted. And I posted on Facebook, I shared a link to that story. And I said, how the heck does this happen? Like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do we discover someone with an underground school shooting camp? And we're just like, go ahead. No problem here. And someone from The church, who I didn't know very well at the time, commented and said, yeah, that's bad, but basically Paul Manafort should be convicted of the same crime because he's basically a traitor or something. Like some crazy comparison between Paul Manafort and this person training people to do school shootings. And I liked that response because I felt like I had to be agreeable. How disgusting is that? <laughs> like that is just, oh, like that was my my first thought was, well, I'm part of the church. I need to be nice. Like I should have said, look, dude, that's crazy. That's a crazy comparison. And I could have done that like 11, but instead I was like, yeah, <laughs> which is sad, sad. Well, but, you're headed in the right direction. I, I've certainly seen a lot worse. 
Well, thank you. I mean, I I have sympathy for people. I think you're absolutely right in your assessment that Christians have fallen into this strange belief that being loving means being agreeable all the time. And I'm certainly, I've been susceptible to it. I'm less susceptible to it now, but it, it's definitely widespread. So like I said, I do have sympathy for modern Christians because I feel like our culture, our American culture, has changed pretty rapidly, even in just the last few years. It seems more apparent than ever that we are living in postmodern, secular, and post-Christian, if not downright anti-Christian times. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say one of the most high-profile pieces of evidence for that would be Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where Justice Kennedy was alarmed by the anti-Christian hostility he saw displayed by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And he said, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission compared Phillips' invocation of his religious beliefs to defenses of slavery and the Holocaust. And the procedure was tainted by this anti-religious bias. This is a high-level state commission that after they were rebuked by the Supreme Court, did not backtrack or repent and doubled down on their anti-Christian bias. Right. And I think to kind of circle back to our critique of cultural problems within the church, the church has got to get over this myth that anything which looks like anti-Christian hostility is actually a proxy for something else. Christians really, really want to believe because it's very comforting that if we just behaved like Jesus behaved, then everyone would love us. And so therefore, if we encounter hostility, it's actually hostility to our meanness and uh, our failure to articulate Christian doctrine the right way. Yeah. Or it's hostility to conservative political positions mm -hmm. or something. I've even seen this from academics. And academics will claim that anti-Christian hostility is really just anti-conservative hostility. And the reason they tend to think this is that it is a fact that American liberals really over-identify Christianity and the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Liberals think there's a much stronger association between those things. Right. Than, but the fact is that if you look at academic anti-Christian bias, George Yancey is a sociologist who studied anti-Christian hostility in academia. And he did a survey where he said, here are some different characteristics. And he was surveying academics. And he said, imagine your department is considering hiring someone and you found out they have this characteristic. Would it make you less likely to hire them? And in political science departments, 25% of academics said that if someone was an NRA member, they would be less likely to hire them. If the candidate was an evangelical Christian, 40% of academics yeah. would be less likely to hire them. In anthropology, it starts off even higher. 45% of anthropologists would be unlikely to hire an NRA member. 60% of anthropologists would be unlikely to hire an evangelical Christian. So wow. the hostility is not to conservative policy positions. It right. is to... Christian teaching itself. And the sooner Christians realize this, the sooner we can directly confront the crux of the real problem and stop dancing around the issue and deluding ourselves with kind of the idea that if we just tweak the way we present ourselves, then suddenly we'll stop encountering this hostility. It yeah. is hostility to Christianity per se. 
That's very well said. That's a good point. You're right that people so overinflate the correlation between evangelicals and Trump. Like I know tons of Christians who hate President Trump. Like, you know, it's just, it's not this huge homogeneous population of Christians. Right. And specifically, liberals tend to think statistically that a large, large number of Republicans and conservatives are evangelicals when in fact, evangelical Christians are a minority within those groups. Liberals for some reason are unaware of that, which is even, I mean, I feel like even as a non-Christian, I didn't really think Dick Cheney was an evangelical (laughs) Christian. So do do these people really think that someone like Cheney or, you know, like Jeb Bush is they're thinking about theology all the time? I find that hard to believe. No. Well, I think it's just, I mean, it seems pretty transparent that it's prejudice towards Christians and conservatives. And it's easier to just, you know, toss them all together at once. <laughs> like, Well, as we can see in those surveys from Yancey, there's greater hostility to Christians yes. than to not, not just Republicans, but to conservatives, right. the NRA members. And in your paper, you talked about this too. I think there is, like you said, the false idea that a lot of Christians think, oh, if less Christians supported Republicans, if less Christians sure. presented themselves as conservatives, then somehow we would become culturally embraced. And what you're saying is that's not true. Yeah. Let me give a specific example from my paper. A lot of Christians do know about the example of Isabella Chow now, I would say. That got a lot of coverage from Christian outlets. But most Christians in America don't know about the example of Tim Farron because he didn't get American media attention. Tim Farron was the head of the liberal Democrats in the UK, and he is an evangelical Christian. Now, what's striking about Tim Farron is on every single political policy issue, he is a left-wing progressive, and his positions are utterly acceptable to liberals in Britain and in the United States, including on any issue relating to LGBT rights. Farron has, for years and years and years, supported marriage equality, ending absolutely all legal semblance of discrimination, uh, has never said anything remotely negative about LGBT people, and in fact, Farron never brought up his Christian position on sexuality. What happened was, and you you might remember the name Kathy Newman. Kathy Newman was the Jordan Peterson interviewer. Kathy Newman started this campaign. Her and all these British journalists, every time they would interview Tim Farron, just because he was a Christian, they would demand that he tell them whether he personally finds same-sex sexual relationships sinful. And he would try to talk about his support for LGBT rights, and they would say no. They would narrowly frame the question and demand that he answer that narrow question. And he at first just refused to answer it. He said, we're all sinners, but they wouldn't take no for an answer. And he eventually just caved. And on the floor of parliament, he said, no, I don't think it's a sin. But people were so whipped up into this anti-Christian frenzy by then that he was forced to resign as leader of the Liberal Democrats. So not only did he have no positions which are politically unacceptable, but he didn't even bring up a controversial (laughs) Christian position. Because he is a Christian, the burden shifted to him to prove that he should be tolerated. Your example wasn't offering any kind of Christian controversial position and still was vilified. Even separating Christianity from conservatism, which they're not even as linked as people think they are, but even if we do separate them and we create this weird brand of Christian social justice leftism, 
there still are a lot of problems. Um, for those who aren't that familiar with SJWism, it refers to kind of the leftist social activist type person who gets very offended about a variety of things. And now we have a Christian version of that, which I think is growing. Sure. Well, I'd want to be a little bit more specific about what I'm talking about, at least when I refer to social justice and social justice progressivism. And because we're not talking here about, say, someone who's a passionate environmentalist and they're sure. offended if you deny global warming. I think what we're talking about is think of the narrative that explains why so many people believed the Jussie Smollett hoax, even though there were transparent holes in the story. Why did people uncritically accept this narrative? And I think basically what social justice progressivism is, the contemporary social justice movement, is an attempt to constrict the Overton window, the range of acceptable opinion in polite society, so that questioning any aspect of that narrative is unacceptable. And I think that has increasingly come into the church. And there are a few potential reasons for that, and obviously one that's not unique to the church uh, that could explain why some Christian public figures buy into this ideology is that if you espouse social justice progressivism, you have more access to elite and influential circles, you have greater job security and greater wealth. I mean, social justice progressivism is the official ideology of corporate America at this point. That's right. why you had the Google James Damore situation. But I think there are a couple of reasons in church culture that make church culture in particular susceptible to social justice progressivism. And one is pretty general. It's going to sound kind of removed from social justice issues, but bear with me for a moment and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. De-emphasis on zeal and the zeal of Christ and the one-dimensional conception of niceness and agreeableness we have those two things together are just bound to make the church susceptible to adopting bad ideas in general. So take something that any Christian would say uh, is a false idea, like, for example, the resurrection was not a historical event. Suppose that you are in a kind of social setting where you're there with several Christians and someone shows up and they start criticizing the historicity of the resurrection. And they're, say, they're ranting about this, they're kind of walking all over everyone, and they're basically getting the better of the conversation. Now, suppose you, Carmen, respond to this by being extremely passive. Say you say one or two nice things to this person, but you don't resist what they're saying at all. You just kind of let them talk, let them criticize. It's just suppose you're, the problem is that you're too passive and you don't offer a defense for the hope that is in you. Is there going to be any taboo on that? Is anyone going to give you a dirty look? Uh, is any Christian going to take you aside later and say, you know, Carmen, I'm really disappointed in you. I know you could have had some things to say. You have a duty to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but you didn't. Probably not. There's probably going to be right. no taboo on that at all. No one is going to criticize you or think less of you for being too passive. You're not going to face any kind of discipline from the community of believers. But suppose you respond and you respond in a way that's very assertive and bold. Could there be a taboo on that? Probably. You yeah. might get some dirty looks from not the person criticizing the resurrection, but some of the other Christians right. in the group. To clarify, I'm not saying that there should be no taboo on any level of boldness. Certainly you do get to a point where you can be so bold that it is unloving. Your boldness has eclipsed your love. Absolutely. But when Peter says we must give a defense for 
the hope that is in us, but we must do so with love. Christians need to remember there's two requirements to comply with that verse. You have to be loving, but you also have to give the defense. You're not complying with the verse if you're loving and quiet. Yes. And the problem with this lopsided emphasis we have on vague niceness and total de-emphasis we have on boldness, where one has a value of a thousand and the other has a value of zero, is that it allows that person who's ranting about how the resurrection didn't happen to totally dominate and control the conversation. Yes. I would also say my, my second point is that I think I mentioned earlier, we have this concept of obedience, which is totally rudderless, and it becomes one dimensional, one dimensional agreeableness that results in a generalized receptiveness to all chastisement, whether the chastisement is justified or is unjustified. With social justice progressivism, this is really relevant because the politics of racial division that are at the center of social justice progressivism, obviously it's also very concerned with uh, Marxist notions of feminism as right. well, but deep-seated is the, the politics of racial division and kind of grievance-based identity politics. And that is always presented as chastisement. And in the church, we are sort of hardwired to be obedient to chastisement. And that, that can be a good thing because obedience to chastisement can, for example, allow a pastor or elders in a church to engage in church discipline, which is part of the New Testament ethic. But it's not supposed to be a generalized obedience or submissiveness to all chastisement. So for example, verses in the New Testament about wives submitting to their husbands, those verses would have no content and they would have no meaning whatever for Christian wives if you were just supposed to submit to everyone all the time anyway. Right. What would those verses possibly mean? So yes. it's not supposed to be generalized. Rudderless submissiveness results in, you know, we have something that looks like chastisement superficially, but actually it's not righteousness. It's uh, malevolence and schadenfreude and it's judging people based on race. Yeah. But we default to assuming that anything that looks like chastisement is actually good faith chastisement and we receive it as such. So yes. I think we need a higher value on zeal. We need to have not such a one-dimensional conception of niceness. And we also need to recognize that not all chastisement is warranted or justified chastisement. If we have a robust conception of human sinfulness, then we would bear in mind that, you know, sometimes people that say they're doing chastising are actually doing something else. They're right. wielding power over people and so on. Yes. Weaponizing it against another person. Absolutely. It sounds like yeah. what you're describing is in a simpler way, you could say discernment, you know, not just taking at face value oh, obviously this criticism is 100% correct and we need to do exactly what this person is asking. It requires a little more wisdom and a little more discernment than just that. Uh, discernment, I feel like I was looking for that exact word and just sort of <laughs> dancing around it. Hit yep. the nail on the head. And I think discernment comes from thinking about your faith using reason and not just emotion yes. and kind of moment to moment sentiment. And it, that doesn't mean you have to be an expert in apologetics, right. but it does mean you need to be regularly in some way exercising the faculty of applying your reason to your faith and yes. submitting your mind to God as well as your heart. And that Absolutely. results in discernment, which is something the church is just lacking in in general. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it seems like emotional discernment, there's a high value on that, on sympathizing and empathizing and really feeling with another person. But that is, like you said, not the only way to discern, and it's not even the best way to discern. You can discern with your mind, and you don't have to be a genius. <laughs> you just have to be 
willing to think critically about your faith in relation to criticism, in relation to social issues and social justice in general. I'm, I'm generalizing the movement is pretty emotionally driven. So I think discernment is very much necessary there. Right. That's why, I mean, even within the church, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of the secular social justice movement. The, the Christian social justice movement is not as extreme and silencing dissent. They won't scream at you right away, but right. you know, you have a conversation with people that espouse this worldview and you will get basically the argument map has like three steps and then you'll get to, they're saying something equivalent to you need to be quiet, uh, yes. which is just an emotion-based hammer. And they themselves don't have a well-developed capacity to reason. That's why they've uncritically adopted this ideology that flies in the face of Galatians injunction that we're neither Jew nor Greek. Right. I mean, you need to be lacking in discernment to have a text that says your identity is in Christ and you need to see other people in the church primarily as brothers and sisters in Christ. If that is your holy text, and now you're going around saying, I see all of, the, all of these people primarily in terms of race, and I assess their background along the one dimension of race. You're lacking in discernment. Very well said. I think to kind of wrap things up here, we've covered a lot of the problems, and I think we both agree that the solution is and you've covered a lot of different solutions, but it is more boldness. And it's counterintuitive, but I think we both agree that more boldness would be more effective in sharing <coughs> the love of Christ. You know, I think people are afraid that boldness is going to turn people off, but I think both you and I see value in boldness. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of things we could do to promote an emphasis on boldness in the culture of the church, but the number one easiest and most intuitive thing we could do is just to promote a more complete picture of Christ's character. And that can include even just what parts of the New Testament we talk about. Uh, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, I was just thinking about this, the fact that Christ said, I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were already kindled in Luke. That is such a quotable quote, as many things that Christ said were, of course. But right. you would expect to hear that quotation a lot in sermons, a lot in church. It has a beautiful, reverence-inspiring ring to it, but it doesn't sit nicely with the one-dimensional milk toast Jesus that <laughs> the culture imagines and that we too often imagine in the church. Yes. And so you don't hear it very often. And if we heard, just hearing more frequently about Christ saying, you serpents, you brood of vipers, about Christ being bold and confrontational, or Paul doing that, or other figures in church history doing that, I think these examples would cultivate a greater value, a greater emphasis on boldness in the church. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I was kind of trying to think too, because I always like when I'm listening to something, when someone breaks down a cultural obstacle, I want to know, you know, I want some practical tips for how to move forward. And I think for me, honestly, what just inspired me to be more bold, and I've by no means reached perfection, but I had this epiphany in having my daughter, Vivian. And I think you can have this epiphany. You don't have to have a child to have this epiphany. This is just kind of how it happened for me. I had to think about what's really important about my life. 
And we live in a culture where it's very easy to be distracted. But when you have to take care of a baby, <laughs> you are you don't have the same opportunity to be so distracted. And with that new clarity of thinking about what's important, I started to realize that whether or not I'm liked or I'm included or I'm celebrated or whatever, you know, which I think so many of these things drive people's fear of being bold. You know, I think there's a real fear of being excluded and being ridiculed and being ostracized for being bold. And that could very well happen. But now having someone, knowing that someone will look up to me and see me, they need to see me wholly committed to Jesus because that is the most inspiring thing I could do for Vivian. That will be the greatest blessing for her life that I can give her. And I think that that's a helpful way for Christians to kind of see the world around them rather than see the world in a combative way totally or see the world in a way where if only we could just fit in with them. Instead, we should see this kind of almost parental or familial type of love for or the wayward world, because I think that can inspire people to hold fast to what's important, not just for us, but for those around us too. I honestly, when I step out and try to be bold, I'm often thinking about other people more than myself, because oftentimes Mm. I would not, I would prefer not to start a conflict or I would prefer not to be pushed back against. But I recognize this problem and I kind of, I want to be that domino that sort of starts more bold conversations, if that makes sense. That last point is really important. If I think if you're a particularly empathetic person, sublimate that empathy into boldness. You know, think about the people who might be listening to the conversation. I'm going to leave these people hanging if I don't offer defense for the hope that is in me. Right. They're going to be inspired and they're going to be given confidence if I stick up for myself. And obviously you're talking about in the case of Vivian, you know, part of surely why that's inspired you to be bold, becoming a mother, having a daughter, is that you're seeing the conversations and interactions you have more objectively. If you had a neighbor that kind of was confronting you about your faith and treating you like Tim Farron was treated or Isabella Chow was treated, you're not just going to see yourself as a neighbor, you're primarily going to see yourself as a mother and you're going to think whose opinion really matters here. It's Vivian's opinion. It's the opinion that's going to last. Right. And that's how we should all be thinking. We should all be stepping back and looking at ourselves from God's perspective in any given social interaction and thinking whose opinion really matters. But I do want to say quickly, I wouldn't want anyone to come away from this interview and think that I'm emphasizing boldness, even though boldness won't be effective. I do actually think you're not just persuading the people on the fence. You are persuading the person you're being bold to. And I've certainly witnessed this in my own life. You talked earlier about my being militantly anti-Christian as a teenager. And I definitely, I had many social interactions as a teenager where I would be interrogating someone about their faith, And from my perspective, the Christian I was talking to would behave like a passive doormat. And that would just egg me on and give me more confidence in what I was saying. I would think to myself, obviously this person has no intellectual conviction. They're innocent and naive, and they're just a Christian because they were raised in the church. And the fact that they're being so passive is proof to me that deep down they know that their faith is a lie. Now that I can empathize with these people and I know more about Christian culture, when I look back on those interactions, that's really not what was happening. Um, what was happening is a lot of those people, I think, were trying to model this one-dimensional, meek and agreeable picture of who they 
they think Jesus is. That's what they were trying to do. They weren't uh, trying to be a doormat. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, they were a doormat. And I would come away from these conversations and say to people, you know, I can tell when I talk to these Christians that deep down, they know this is not true. And that's what I was taking away from this. It was putting blood in the water and it was strengthening my conviction that Christianity was false. But when I would encounter someone who would be really assertive with me and they would put their foot down and boldly proclaim their position, you know, I might not have you know, hugged that person at the time. I would have continued to carry on in the way that I was carrying on already. But internally, I was thinking, huh, that's, that's interesting. There's a kind of strength here. Yeah. Um, there must be yeah. there must be a kind of power. This isn't just something that can be explained by their their parents raising them Christian. There must be a kind of power that's at work here that I don't fully understand. And lo looking back on that, you know, if I can offer one thing from those conversations that's of use to believers now, it would be the encouragement that being bold is actually persuasive. And that inspires me, those memories, to be bold when I'm talking to people who appear hostile and not receptive. People will be inspired by the power behind your ideas, and they need to see boldness to see that power. Absolutely. Very well said. Thanks, Ian. I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. I know there's lots more we could talk about, so we should definitely do this again sometime. And if you guys enjoyed this, Ian has got his own podcast. It is called The Book of Kings, and it is the first ever narrative history podcast. Books of Kings. Oh, Books of Kings. Shoot, I messed it up. Books of Kings. Books of Kings, which is the first ever narrative history podcast about the Bible. I know it seems like I don't listen to it, but I do. <laughs> and it's very good. I have enjoyed it. I need to catch up on them. Um, but they're very fascinating if you have any interest at all in history, in the Bible. And it's pretty cool that you guys are the first one ever. That's a cool accolade. Well, the name is pretty generic, as you indicated. So you might have to poke <laughs> through the search results a bit. It, it's pretty new where we just recorded our fourth episode, uh, but you can find us anywhere podcasts are found, Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, search for Books of Kings. And we have a Facebook page at Books of Kings, uh, or you can find us on Twitter. It's Books of Kings with underscores. Oh, cool. I didn't know there was a Twitter. Awesome. There's a Twitter. It's pretty <laughs> small, but uh, I wanted to give people every go-to. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for chatting with me about this. I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks to everyone who tuned in. I hope you found this conversation helpful and I'll see you next time.